You made the north and the south. You created the heavens and you are in control of the earth. That this is the God that we worship and this is the God that we serve. And he is entirely capable of keeping John in the palm of his hand through this whole journey as well as with money. She's made a little bit of progress, but we ask that you would be the great physician and heal her and provide for her needs as well as with Monty. She's got a heart pump and waiting for a transplant. So Father, there are those, those among us, whether it be Marie Bonson, that she has, uh, her days are numbered on this earth and they're much more clear now than they have ever been. So we ask that you'd be with that family as well as they are on a journey and they're about to turn a page and things will never be the same. So, Father, we ask that you give her and their family a peace that they'd be able to, to manage through these difficulties and this illness. And Father, there has a, been a request that a person with a skin problem would be able to get into the doctor, and you know all the peculiar aspects and all the details of this. And we would ask that you would provide for this family that this guy could get into the doctor. He could be able to get a biopsy and get this checked out so that he could get it fixed. It's kind of getting out of hand and he'd just like to be able to, to get it fixed. So Father, this family is brought before the throne of grace that they can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as we've said many times, we are a needy people. We just don't know it as much as we should. So Father, as we preach this word, as we bring it before the people, may your Holy Spirit go out and give it, give it power and effectiveness as only you can. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll probably see in your bulletin, you see next week we've got uh, Daylight Savings Time, and the board has met, and at the end of this month we're going to be having a, a potluck again, and we want to be wise, but you can kind of, we're going we're gonna to get to what we were originally created for. <laughs> so we're going to do that, but, but through it all we want to be careful, and uh, hopefully we can kind of get back to normal a, a little bit. You don't open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, and we're going to be going verses, most of the verses from 13 to the end of the chapter, and that's a real chunk. So I don't want to belabor each verse. I want to kind of have it more under broader headings, and then we can discuss some of the broader issues in this passage and, and not get into in what I call get into the weeds with each of the verses because we'll be here for a long time if we do that. And that's not the intent at all. Uh, you see, as we've, if you've been following us for the last number of weeks, Paul is on his missionary journey, and this is all a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where they, the people are scattered from Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this, what Paul is doing on his missionary journey, is the uttermost parts of the earth. And if, there it is, that guy like that guy, we're going to hire him permanently. Got the map up there, isn't that great? So we're going to take a, just a brief look at that. Uh, we started over here in Antioch. This is Tarsus, where Paul's hometown was. Paul went to Antioch, and then he went to this city port of Seleucia. He went on down here to the island of Cyprus. He visited various cities along the coastline of Cyprus all along here. He went to Paphos, which is where he met Sergius Paulus and the guy by the name of Elamus or Bar-Jesus, that's either way, it's a son of salvation or son of Jesus. It was right here in Paphos. And now we're going to see they're taking a ride and they're going all the way over here to Perga, 
in the region of Pamphylia, right there that you can see the word Pamphylia, in the larger area of Galatia. And the reason I bring up the Galatia part of it is on Paul's first missionary journey, which this is, he wrote the book of Galatians because it was Galatia. It was in that area where he wrote it. That's where the people were. He wrote the book of Galatians on his first missionary journey. So when you read Galatians, you can go, ah, Paul was in this particular region when he wrote that on his first missionary journey. Kind of just gives a little bit of uh, context for when you're reading a passage. Also, you're going to see that he goes, he's, he, he lands in Perga. Our, our message today is going to be in Antioch, not to be confused with this Antioch over here. They're both the same name. This is Antioch of Pisidia. So they go, we're going to go to Antioch. He's going to go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And then you'll see he'll go back, and he'll go all the way back here to Antioch again. We're not going to get that far today. That would be Paul's first missionary journey. Starting in verse 13 of Acts, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. We just, just talked about that. Where John left them to return to Jerusalem. There has been a whole lot of discussion, both here and certainly more in academic books. Why did John Mark leave? Why did John Mark leave? Because it was in, in other books, it even brings this up that there was a, a large, um, there was there was some of this going on. There was conflict going on, and John Mark left. And you'll see in the very first line that I read, it says from Paphos. Paul and his companions, that's a first. That is a first. It's always Barnabas and Paul, or the disciples and Paul, or something. Now it's reversed, and it will remain reversed. Is Paul, I don't want to say he's in charge, but he is in charge. Okay? I'm not saying he's, he's using his, his influence inappropriately, but he's in charge, and some have said John Mark didn't like that. He would take orders or he would follow Barnabas, but he didn't want to follow Paul. So I'm out of here and I'm going back to Jerusalem. So he's, he's over in this particular area and, and John Mark goes all the way over to here and then he has to go all the way down here to Jerusalem. That is in other books, it's discussed further, but that lets you know what's going on. Verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. That was their custom. They, they went in there, and they would be visitors. Paul and Barnabas would be visitors there. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent a word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And that was a, that was a custom. If somebody new was in the audience and they had the ability uh, to speak or to, to give an edifying or an encouraging word, they would say, Hey, you're from out of the area. Do you have anything that you'd like to share with us? So Paul stands up, and as you can imagine, yes, he did. He had quite a lot to share. And as you're reading, well, as you're following along with me in verse 16 reading, you'll see that Paul is structuring what he is saying to the people in the synagogue very much like Stephen when he made his defense in Acts chapter 7. And he was then, Saul was in the audience and listening to Stephen's defense, 
and it was a historical account, and Stephen's was longer by a bunch, but Stephen made a historical account of how Jesus was in history, and Paul does the same thing, only on a smaller scale. So if you have that urge, which I always kind of like to compare things like that, read it with that in mind. Verse 16, Paul standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With a mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for over 40 years in the desert, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance, and all of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, the tribe of Ju from the tribe of Ju uh, Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. And before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. We're going to stop there for just a minute. Uh, just to kind of fill in the picture a little bit for you, in this particular region up here and in the cities in, the cities in this region, John the Baptist was thought very highly of. They knew about him and they thought a lot of him. And when, G, when Paul put in here about John the Baptist, he says, no, I'm not the one, but the one, he's coming after me. And the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That would have made a big impression on them because they thought a lot of John the Baptist. So this is the, this is the information you get. Now, when you read a history books, you can do a biography of, you know, Churchill or Reagan, Hitler. You can do biographies of all kinds. This is a historical account of what Jesus did in the lives of the Jews. That's what it is. It's an account, and anybody that's been in in church for, for years and years, they should know this account that God started here with the Jews and step by step by step by step, this is what he did until his actual coming, which Paul said was promised. Said right in here, and, and uh, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. So that is what I would call kind of like Jesus in history. Uh, there's about 12 points there, and I don't need to do, line those out. You can read those for yourself. He just gave it point after point after point. The next part that we go to is the gospel, and it starts at verse 26. It says, Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did, rec did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. 
Though they found no proper grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to all our people. I put those verses as the gospel. It's the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the part in this that I want to I just hone in on for just a minute is verse 27. It says, the people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Why not? They have prophets, they have the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They've got all these teachers of the law. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Well, they didn't pay any attention to him because he didn't fit the mold that they had preconceived on Jesus, meaning they had taken a look at Jesus and he didn't have a trade, at least not one that he he worked at to survive on his own because he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He went from place to place to place. He didn't have a background. He didn't have influential parents. Uh, he was a carpenter's son. Frankly, from their perspective, he was nothing. He was absolutely nothing. He had no money. He had no influence. He had no standing in society. He wasn't even a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a scribe. He was barely a rabbi, and that was only to his disciples. That he had no prestige, he didn't come from an, a, a, a college, university, some institution that had standing. He had not even been to school. He wasn't at the feet of a great scholar. He didn't have any money. Uh, the miracles that, he saw, that they saw him do, they didn't pay that much attention to it, or they just immediately forgot him. So what? They did not recognize him because they didn't put any stock in him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't see who he was. The second reason they didn't recognize him is they did not understand the scriptures. They heard the scriptures, but they didn't understand the scriptures. The reading of the scriptures had just become a religious rite a perfunctory act that they did every single Saturday. They read the scriptures, and you know what is scary to me is I'm the same way, is you can sit in the audience and you read the scriptures and you hear the scriptures and you go, yep, yep, I've heard that before, and we go our merry way, and it doesn't do a thing for us. We hear it, we know it, uh, how many of you have been in CRC churches and say, today, the, today is the day the Lord has made. Let, let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many times have you heard that? And we hear that, and we go, yeah, that's what they always say. And then we go home and we have lunch. But it doesn't really change us. We go, oh, yeah, we've heard that. In fact, I see some, some hands, oh, I've heard that. Okay, we've heard it thousands of times. But does it change us? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. This is the problem with these Jews here, is they had heard, they heard the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, but they didn't really know the scriptures. That is the same type of danger that we have, is they knew the scriptures so poorly 
that they fulfilled the scriptures by turning Jesus over to Pilate and having him crucified. That's how poorly they had interpreted the scriptures. That's a pretty bad indictment. It really is. So, the Gospels, they didn't recognize him because they didn't understand the scriptures and they gave him no credibility. Then we have the invitation, which is in verse 38. 38 says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of the Moses. Now, this is the first place in the New Testament where you're going to hear the allusion to, he doesn't say the words, justification by faith. That's, that's not here. But it's sure a first cousin to it. So Paul is saying these words, and if you go to the book of Romans, that is kind of the, the broader theme of the whole book of Romans is justification by faith. Okay? For you and I, we, we, could, we, we go back here again to you're hearing, but you're really not hearing what's being said. That's not new to us. I say, you know, the Gospels are justification by faith. You go, yeah, we know that. That would be way outside of the realm of possibilities for the audience that Paul was, was speaking to because they were all about legalism and obedience to the law and obedience to the Ten Commandments and they knew they were not fulfilling the Ten Commandments perfectly but it was the best they could do. So they're trying really hard and they want, they want to do the very, very best that they can. They're trying to be good but they're still being condemned because they cannot fulfill the law perfectly. Paul comes along and he says, you're justified by faith. Like I said, that doesn't shock us at all. That shocked them a lot. Now you, in, in the pew racks, there is a Revised Standard Version and it really minimizes or diminishes the word in this particular verse because it uses the word freed instead of justified. And justified is a much uh, bigger uh, and weightier word than freed because it talks about this justification by faith. So I want to ask, what does it mean to be justified? What it says here, through, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This is what it means. Justified means, the definition is the act, of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. It is being made righteous or being made, uh, de being declared righteous in the sight of God. That is what justified is. Now, if you took God and you said, you know, we're going to have, have Paul or Fred or or Claudia, or take your pick. You say, you know, they're really good people. And, and I know, I know they're sinners, but you really should just accept them and just forgive them, okay? Just forgive them. They're just a good old boy. Does that mean you're justified? Would that be appropriate for God to do? Absolutely not. Because God says sin has a penalty. And if God gave me or you or anybody else a wink and a nod and says, hey, you're really a good old boy, 
you can just come on in. It's fine. We don't need to pay for your sin because you're just a really good person. You know, I just like you. He can't do that. Because if God did that, he would be a partaker in that sin. He would be winking at sin and just kind of letting it go. So what Jesus did is he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for every single sin. And every sin could be judged to the nth degree. There's no pass. Nobody gets a little pass like, okay, you know, you're good enough. We'll let you, you're close. We'll just let you in. Because then he would not be dealing with sin like he said he would be. But when you're justified, God says, you know what? With my sin and your sin and your sin and your sin, I paid for it all. There's no little backdoor pass where you can get in because if he did that, he would not be dealing with sin as seriously as he could. God is faithful to deal with sin like he said it should be dealt with in the law. There is a penalty for sin. In the Old Testament, what was the penalty for sin? They shed the blood of a lamb. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. Well, now we're in the New Testament. There still needs to be a sacrifice for sin, and it can either be your sacrifice, which means eternal condemnation, or it can be the sacrifice of Jesus, and he will take your place of condemnation. So it's, it's a really big term here to say that you can be justified before God not by being obedient to the law. Certainly we don't throw the law out. We want to be, but we're not going to be perfect. So, if a person, and there are those, they go, this can't be, that it is a free gift and God will pay for that sin himself, they go, that can't be. Well, it is. And if a person tries to earn their salvation on their own, they'll never make it. The next section, the warning, verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that, that you would never believe, even if someone told you. What, he's, what he means there on that, just to kind of break it all down, is Paul is talking to an audience like this. And there's some people out there that no doubt they're a affirming him as he's speaking. And there's some people that are, you can see he's going like this, he's going, wait a minute, let me stop in what I'm saying and say, don't be like the prophets that were before you. He, I'm editorializing here, okay? He's going, I can see some of you are not convinced. I can see there's a couple back over here and there's a couple back over here. And maybe there's a few over here and they're kind of going, hmm. He goes, oh, oh guy, let me, let me pause here a second. Don't take care that what, what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Meaning, they will not believe what Scripture says. He's saying, careful, careful, don't do what your descendants have done. Don't respond like some of the Jews in the past have responded. And then we go to the response, the very last one in four, verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue... The people invited them to speak, to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. 
And when the congregation was just dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with, as Jesus was when he saw the crowds, Jesus was filled with compassion for the crowds. Here it says the Jews were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded us. The response, the response is mixed. And that is very, very indicative of the gospel. There's those that will believe, and those who will outright reject, and then there's still those in the middle that are kind of considering it. But you have those that, that accepted it, and they were glad, and in fact, the whole city came out to hear what Paul had to say. So there was absolutely a mixed review on this. But the deal is, Paul says, if you don't believe, this is, this is a harsh word, if you do not believe, you are not worthy of eternal life. They have judged themselves and have been found unworthy to have eternal life. Now, I want to I use um, kind of a, a th this is imperfect. This is an imperfect illustration, and I know that. But I want to give you a, an illustration that goes like this. Sal and I, in, the, in years past, we went to France one time. Katie, my, our daughter, was singing, and she was in Europe, and she was doing whatever she did. And that's fine. So we had some days. And anyway, we went to Paris, and we went to the Louvre. You know, the Louvre is supposed to be this, this all la-dee-daw thing, right? And it is. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And there's pictures that are this square, and there's pictures that are as big as this whole, this whole wall and painted. There's just, I would say, thousands and thousands of pictures in there. They're masterpieces in their own right. And we saw the Mona Lisa. I went in there, Mona Lisa's about that square. I went in there, here it comes, we're going to see the Mona Lisa. And I went, that's it, under glass, this is it. I mean, it's, it's like, that's it? It had, it had a frame about this square, but the picture was about this square. It's, it's very small. It's very, very small. And you, can get, and you can get real close to it. It's in glass and all this and that. Now, I would dare say, if I were to individually pull you, every one of you have heard of the Mona Lisa. Okay, you may, you may, I didn't know how big it was, but you know it exists, right? So if I were to talk about the Mona Lisa, and you were to say, you know, I kind of I fancy myself to be an art critic, and I think it's lousy art. I just don't think it's that good at all. Time, the, by virtue of time and the millions of people that have looked at that art and judged it to be a masterpiece would make you a lousy critic. It would make you a lousy critic. There are millions of people that have judged this to be absolutely a masterpiece. And through time and a multitude of people, that has been declared a masterpiece. So I could take you or, or somebody else, or you could take me, and we could go listen to the finest orchestra in the world, and they are playing the finest music in the world that has been judged to be a masterpiece by millions of people over centuries of time. And this is a classic, and you go, eh, really, I kind of like Elvis. You go, uh, you have judged yourself 
to be a lousy judge of music. Okay, you, you have judged yourself by, by being, frankly, ignorant of what millions of people have said. And in this particular case, Jesus is not on trial. Jesus is not the one on trial here. We know who he is, but you and I are on trial by what we do with Jesus Christ. We declare judgment on ourselves by what we say about Jesus. And time, centuries, centuries and centuries of time, and millions and millions of people who are smarter than me that have looked at this and says, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He had a ministry. He was crucified. He rose from the dead. He is the justifier of sin. And for you and I to sit here and go, well, really, actually, I'm just kind of weighing Jesus in the balance. and I just don't think he's all that great. You have, you have deemed yourself to be an incredibly uh, non-intellectual critic of who Jesus is, Aside from what scripture says, just by centuries of time and millions and millions of people have said what they've said about Jesus, it has shown that you are condemning yourself. And there is a doctrine in scripture, and we're not going to get into the weeds on this one because we won't get out of here for a long, long time. But there is a doctrine in scripture that if you are saved, you are condemned. Okay?
table in an inappropriate manner, there is judgment. There is judgment to be had. But if you know him as Lord and Savior, you are invited, you are encouraged to come. Jesus says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are encouraged to come to the table and partake so we can remember what was talked about in this passage where Paul talked about the ministry, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Steve, if you can play some music, Paul, we'll start with you and just file up here and grab some of these elements.
Because of earth to be ridiculed and spit upon 